Hi, and welcome to episode two of Without You. I'm your host, Jennifer Woodward, and Without You is a podcast about sex, love, and addiction. I'm a writer and an actor, and the podcast came to be because I wrote a book called 90 Days Without You that deals with these subjects fictionally, and I wanted to start talking about the issues that the book raises in real life. So here we are. I'm joined on the podcast with Adriana Irvin, a psychotherapist specializing in addiction, and Sophie, an anonymous addict in recovery. And even though I'm introducing today our second episode, we actually recorded this episode more than a few months ago, and we've recorded a few episodes, and the editing process is a slow process. But Sophie pointed out, now that we've got a few of these under our belt, that it's through discussing a topic that she feels she gains more insight into the topic. And um, I find that to be true for myself as well. And hopefully, you as a listener may even glimmer more insight still. In which case, please let us know what you discover. We're on various social media sites, the usuals, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So now, back to today's episode. We're going to be talking about attraction, initial attraction. Why do I lose my appetite when I'm attracted to somebody? Why are we attracted to who we're attracted to? Why does it click with some people but not with others? What's romantic attraction? What's falling in love? Let me know what you think. Here is episode two, Attraction. Without you, woman, sex, love, and addiction, yeah. Well, the general sense of attraction is more is much more of an unconscious piece and the unconscious part of the mind is 90% or rather like the hard drive and the conscious part is 10% like the desktop and I'm very bad at computers as you both know because it always takes a while for me to get into the podcast um, and I understand that my computer is run by the hard drive but I can't see it and I don't understand it so I know that personally I'm kind of run by my hard drive I can't see it and I'm beginning to understand it. It's a lifelong achievement. So something that is attractive is going to appeal to the hard drive more obviously, except that you can't see it or necessarily interpret it, than it will to the desktop. We think that somebody's really attractive, but what we find out over time is that we grew up in the same place or we have a very similar trauma or we were both abandoned by a parent or whatever it may be. And we couldn't apparently know that at the beginning but we find it out. I know there's a theory that often who we're attracted to consciously or unconsciously is about resolving something in our biography or something in our family patterns. Yes, I call it going back to the scene of the crime to come up with a different outcome. It's, it's we're always trying to, because... I don't know how deeply we want to go into this, but because trauma usually happens, if it's developmental or young childhood trauma, we never can resolve that because in order to acknowledge that it's actually going on, we have to admit that actually our life is hanging in the balance. Even if it's not literally doing so, that is how it feels. So we will, I mean, Freud talks about our compulsion to repeat events, all the 
big old psychotherapists talk about our compulsion to repeat, no matter what school of thought they come from. And indeed, that is what we do. It's the repetition. It's what we then begin to see as our patterns. So if, and I will use myself, my father was military, he was away a huge amount of time while I was a child, so it wouldn't take Freud to figure out that I think someone who lives on another continent, that's perfectly fine for the beginnings of a relationship. Of course, mm. in adult life, I came to discover it wasn't. But mm. you can see what I was trying to do was to make the person either receding out the door, turn around and say, no, no, I'm here, or preferably, no, don't worry, I won't go. Well, I have two questions. First of all, that's like everybody. It doesn't matter if you're an addict or not an addict. Is that right? Okay. It's just that when we get into an addiction, what's the difference if you're an addict with this 90%? Well, the percentages more or less won't differ. Um, but yes, Sophie, you, you describe how that feels for you. Well, I think this subject of addiction is really interesting. And I... Um... And I appreciate your, you know, explaining it so clearly in terms of what motivates us to gravitate towards someone. And I think um, a couple of things to say that, yes, that operates. And as I've got to know myself and my patterns, I can see even when I think that I'm consciously going in the opposite direction to my childhood patterns, then... It's there. It's part of the picture. The other thing I think from an addictive point of view is that my attraction to someone might not actually be about being attracted to that person. So that pull, that charge, that something that promotes me to want to get involved with someone romantically or sexually may not be about attraction towards a relationship. It might be because that's what I use to not feel my feelings. I think this is where it becomes a whole different kettle of fish. So it's like if we're talking about drinking, I might not be drinking to be social with my friends. I might be drinking because I I don't like the way that I feel. And I think it's the same thing with... uh, getting involved in romantic or sexual liaisons of any type, if I'm using that as a, as a fix in some way, or if my patterns are such that I am compulsively attracted to other people and I have no choice in the matter of responding to somebody else's seduction as well, I think that's a different... Is that attraction or is that just... Uh, the you know what you were talking about the magnetic forces which you could see in an addictive light that I don't really have any choice in this I'm just I know in addiction we talk about acting out I'm just acting out a trauma and a need a compulsion a distraction but I think I think you hit on two things the first is that I think we're in each other's lives for a reason a season or a lifetime And it becomes clear. And so if it is just, for want of a better description, a quick attraction, a magnetic pull, it may just be for a reason or a season and we'll learn something. Have you ever had that sense where a relationship, even if it was a week long or five years long, ends and the person goes and you think, and it could be platonic even, wow, I know more about me than I really know about them. I'm not really quite sure who they were. But I also think... In, in what what separates or what can separate, separate out 
addicts. It all sounds pejorative, but I'm so used to the language that I kind of throw it around. But addicts as opposed to uh, civilians, as I call them. Non-addicts. Um, non-addicts. Is that there's very little self-belief, self-esteem, dignity. There's, a, there's a, a real void. I think everybody is born with a void, but I think in addiction the void is bigger. And but so therefore the drive is to have something or someone help contain or fill that void but you could have very low self-esteem and not be an addict unlikely interesting Interesting. so sometimes when it clicks okay you mentioned this i'm going way back adriana you said that sometimes the attraction is trauma and my understanding and just jump in here and correct me when I say something that's perhaps not technically true, but I've learned a lot about trauma bonding. Mm -hmm. And my understanding is that this is a great way, though perhaps incredibly painful, to heal childhood traumas. And this is when two people, madly attracted to each other, they bond because their subconscious, or their unconscious rather, their unconscious trauma has found the right jigsaw piece for the other and they've just gone click. Yes, but you could end up in a, this dates me, but you could end up in a Sid and Nancy or a Romeo and Juliet scenario. Mm, Absolutely. It only becomes healthy if the two of them realise that the bond has turned into like a toxic glue. Mm. It's It's not the intimacy that they thought that the intensity has actually glued them together. And then they both have to decide that they want the help there. Like, what does it look like? What does toxic glue in a relationship look like? I have my own ideas. Well, I think it's very personal. I think Mm. we can use these big terms like sex addiction and love addiction and toxic glue and trauma bonding. And then there's... And their categories or their spectrums, the most popular word at the moment outside of trauma... um, and I think then they become very personal. They have our own hue, our own colour, our own feel to them. And we have that sense of being pulled and we push against it. Again, it's a pull and a push and it's something that goes on within us. Again, another sort of funny number. We're about 80% water and water is the element of emotion and feeling. And so we will feel that push and pull almost of the tides of our own emotions when we're trauma bonded with somebody. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's 100% toxic glue. There can be the sticky bits that are good. Yeah, I was just going to say I can see, I relate to a lot of um, this theory. And, okay, sex and love addiction, acting out aside, I guess as I got in my recovery and in my long-term relationships I can see the attraction and I can I can understand more some of the patterns that are driving me to who I'm attracted to and who I'm with and I completely agree Adriana that there might of course as traumatized people we are going to bring that trauma into our relationships and as people who come from where we come from whatever kind of um childhood needs were not met, we're going to bring those into our relationship. I guess the trick for me has been having some awareness of that, some understanding, and 
kind of working through it and not running. I think typically as well, I would have run when the going gets tough, which might not mean that the relationship is bad. It's the relationship is just the container. It might mean that I've just come across some sticky stuff that's keying into and triggering all sorts of stuff that it just feels impossible. And certainly my experience of going through that is when it drops into another level and, and, and gets better, you get through, and then, then it becomes healing. So you need courage. You sure do. God. So Adriana, talk to me about falling in love and what, what we actually mean by that. Because if we're saying that our love patterns are pretty much set up from the patterns we experience from our childhood and what we see modelled to us by our parents, this whole business of, you know, falling in love. Very uh, It's kind of interesting. Falling. Yes. I do think we fall, mm. but I don't think it's in love. That right. said... I do think we can fall into attraction, we can fall into lust, we can fall into like. You know, it's such a small word, but actually liking somebody is really key because we can love people and not actually terribly like them in several moments and times and maybe days on end, and that's quite difficult to compute. Actually, this love at first sight, it isn't love. It's chemical, but it isn't love. What about these people that seem to meet each other and kind of... They just knew that they were destined to be together and then they figured it out and it's all great. Because I do know people like that. So do I. I mean, not so many, but I do. And they're still together. But that's like how, the opposite how... of that could be like an arranged marriage. Absolutely. Whereas I think, so what I hear Adriana saying is that the falling bit doesn't really matter. I mean, maybe it's kind of just the way that our biology or God or the universe gets us together. Well, I think... And then... I think it's our way of wearing rose-tinted spectacles, and there's nothing wrong with those, but ultimately you've got to be kind of slightly more realistic, I think, about it. And I'm not, I'm not anti-romance at all. Um, I think it's huge. I think it's, it's, the, it's the soft places where we need to go to, to kind of stop experiencing all the hard edges but I think the notion um, that we fall in love and everything's hunky-dory and we live happily ever after I think with a soaring divorce rate and domestic abuse going through the roof and addiction as rife as it is I think the actual reality is somewhat different yeah I can certainly share that my falling in love experiences in my life the big thing um were with people who didn't really want to be with me or were just not available interestingly neither of them was I initially attracted to as a meet someone and oh my god you know the meet someone oh my god uh I married when I was quite young um but I don't know whether that was a sort of big falling in love thing but well, I how would you know... define falling in love then? How do you know? Well, this what... is, but that's the thing. That's my question because I also know, like I said before, that there have been people in my past that have been interested in me who would have made great partners, but I wasn't attracted 
So we didn't fall in love. I just well, you were, you weren't interested. finding yourself attractive at that point. I mean, you may have looked in the mirror and thought, "Yeah, I'm okay," but but deep down, that real essence of, "Do you know what? I'm really okay with myself. I don't overlove myself, but I certainly I'm not going to throw myself away." And until we have that real deep felt, "I'm actually really okay," it's very difficult to find the good people okay. We find them dull. Dull, very true. And also in looking for the unavailable, I now understand of trying to make a parent available to me yeah. or trying to prove my unlovability. Actually, it's probably more that to prove that, yes, you're right, I'm not lovable, I will be rejected. I remember that, the pain of that, um, that love, the love addiction, terrible, abandoned of just begging someone to lie to me, of just please say that you love me. Mm. And just because I need that so badly in this moment. And yet the irony is, in that exact scenario that you've just painted, you wouldn't have believed them. Because unless and until we can feel it or some, have some baseline of feeling it for ourselves, it's not believable in the other because yeah, we are going true. back to the scene of the crime to come up with a different outcome. Well, it wouldn't have solved anything either, that temporary validation from someone that, yes, I want you. It's like, well, what does that mean? That's just like a temporarily using a drug. Yeah. And when keep mentioning the love of self and starting to have self-esteem and somebody once put it to me that you can change your picker you know like as if we have these antennas mm -hmm. on our head and you can change your picker and that it comes when that change starts to happen within ourselves well, absolutely, well, because in we're not we're no look at no longer looking for intensity and well, let's hope we're no longer looking for intensity. But also, you know, mind-boggling sex has fallen down the list a bit. And actually, ironically, will probably arrive exactly. more likely with someone mm -hmm. that we do really care about and who does really care about us. And who can really see us and be seen by us. Yeah, and probably further down the line in the relationship as well. Yeah. I mean, definitely my, thank God, well, let's hope my pickers changed a bit because I no longer need those, I no longer need that type of dysfunction in certain yeah. ways. Maybe that's, it just shifts like, no, thank you. I don't want to be abused. No, thank you. I don't want to be with someone who's constantly looking over my shoulder, looking for the next person. Yeah. You know, no, thank you. I don't need to get my self-esteem because some person that I really don't care about wants to have sex with me sure you know those over time those things change as I get more of a sense of myself um, yeah. and start and so liking myself a bit more and so the attraction isn't based on an addictive need but perhaps a healthy need because we always have needs. We always have needs. I don't know that the needs are necessarily addictive but the attraction isn't based on filling the holes that we have. Yeah, I guess what Adriana said about something in our unconscious subconscious is saying, hello, mm -hmm. yeah. I think you've got something that I might need either to get into a mess or to heal something or to uncover something. Yeah. I guess we're just finding each other, finding something in different ways. So, Yeah. 
there was one other thing that I just wanted to delve into a little bit more. Again, was this this in-loveness. Well, it's very potent. I mean, we feel very alive. I mean, I don't think your entire appetite is wiped out, but you don't need so much food. You know, your, 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 your whole kind of chemical system is on the up. Um, Best diet ever. Yeah. Yeah, for and sure. E and equally, it's interesting, when, when our heart is broken, of course, chocolate is the obvious thing. And it's the one um, man-made substance that has something called tryptophan, which is also found in Turkey, actually, that makes you feel better. So we're, it's very interesting how we instinctively seek things that make us feel better, um, whether that's, you know, chocolate when, we're, when our heart's broken or weepy movies or whatever it may be, or whether it's actually that feeling in love, feeling vital, feeling validated, feeling wonderful about ourselves and another human being. I don't think there's anything more potent than that well because yeah, we feel awesome. great we see i guess we see ourselves in the eyes of the beloved so we mm -hmm. we think they're great we we feel great i guess we're in that rose-tinted world that you talked about that's so lovely where we're probably making up a whole bunch of things about them well it, it also though goes things about us and but it also goes back to the original mirroring you know, the, the whole attachment basis, you know, the, in the primary caregiver or in the mother's gaze, you know, when you when someone sees you and their whole face lights up, you know, oh, look who it is. It's wonderful. You know, you know, on the phone, if the person goes, hi, how are you? You kind of you don't even think about it, but you settle back. But if somebody goes, hello. OK, state my business quickly. You know, we we react mm. absolutely in symbiosis with people whether they're the new love or, or the best friend. So the falling in love, we're back to that original being loved. Mm. So you, you talked about the mirroring. So we're, it's about something else. Yes. It's, it's about that, you know, blissful infant or, or whatever it is. Mm. I mean, the, the, I don't even know if we want to go there on this podcast, but it, it's, you know, one of the, one of the things that distresses me is when our big terms in psychotherapy go out to what I call the bus stop and everybody starts talking about narcissism. There's a healthy degree of narcissism in all of us. You know, the original Greek myth was Narcissus was a lonely, beautiful little boy. No one was there to mirror him, to receive him, to, so that he could see, feel that gaze. So he fell in love with his own reflection in the, right. in the water. Mm. And But he also, which is a crucial part of the story, when he went out walking in the hills, and it's a myth, but nonetheless, all the Greek myths are amazing, and he, f he would shout hello and back would come the echo. So he fell in love with the goddess Echo, but she did not exist. And ultimately, he, in communing with his own reflection, he fell in and drowned. Wow. I heard somebody say that falling in love was... Um, the only acceptable form of psychosis or something like that. <laughs> That's great. I love that. There's a healthy narcissism in falling yes. in love. So we're Absolutely. falling in love with ourselves, effectively. Well, we, we, it's a really, really good point, Sophie. We fall in love with the person that we think they see that we would really like to be. So it's like a better presentation of ourselves. Okay, sorry. Can you say that again? So that we fall in love. Wild. <laughs> We fall in love with the person that we think they see, which we hope is the better version of ourselves. 
we fall in love with the person meaning our, that, that they see meaning ourselves. Uh-huh. So when we're falling in love with another person, we're falling in love with a part of ourselves that is the better part of ourselves. And with them. And the better part of them. Because them. when you, I mean, it depends, we go, this can go well, in so course. many different directions. But when you show up on a, on a date, you're on the fifth date, you might not have come straight from, you know, brand new clothes or whatever, but you are showing the best external presentation of yourself. Absolutely. You know, you're not interrupting them. You're hanging on their every word. You're listening to what it is they're saying. It's a better presentation of yourself and they're getting that. So they're reflecting back the person you really want to be, which is the better version of yourself. Now, gradually, that's very hard to keep up. It's almost like a hypervigilance, although it's a pleasant one. But ultimately, we settle back and it's in that settling back. If we do it at the same time, we can find a rhythm with the person. This is in a, in a, a love relationship. And ultimately, the better person of ourself or the better aspect of ourself becomes the constant. You know, the one that does say, how was your day? How are you doing? How do you feel? Oh, I got you this because I knew that this was your favorite food or whatever it is. Hmm. So there is the possibility that in that falling in love, you see, you get a glimpse of the potential for the relationship, assuming that there's no crazy addictive stuff going on. Is that possible? Yes. Interesting. I think we've covered it, ladies. I'm going to end us there and say thank you for joining me today. It's a pleasure. Look forward to doing this again. (laughs) Thanks, Jen. Wait, there was one other thing I was going to say, which is that I did Google fatal attraction as I was like thinking about this. And um, this just, I wasn't going to mention this because it kind of brings us back to the beginning of the conversation, but I was just looking at quotes and Alex, which is the Glenn Close character, says, why is it that all the interesting guys are married? And Dan says, well, maybe that's why you find them interesting because you can't have them. Well, Mm. heaven knows what her childhood was, but she really did try to go back. She didn't go back to the scene of the crime to come up with a different outcome. She actually created the scene of the crime. She recreated the crime. She couldn't get out of the toxic glue. She could not. Okay, thank you, ladies. Thank you for talking to me today. A big thank you to Ross Berman at Mr. Ross Berman for producing and engineering. And thank you at Amelia Baylor for music. We'd love to hear from you. So if you have any questions or topics you'd like to hear discussed, get in touch with us on Instagram or Twitter. Our handle is at Without You Pod or find our Facebook group Without You Podcast. And if you like what you heard... We'd love it if you subscribed or even went so far as to give us a review. Pretty please. Next time, we're going to talk about dating. Okay? Sounds good. Great. Which, by the way, I have one of a week on Monday. Woohoo! <gasps> oh my goodness. <laughs> That's exciting news. I'm your host, Jennifer Woodward, and we'll be back soon. Until then, take care. Bye for now. Yeah.